Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session 31 uh, as we continue to creep our way through chapter 7 here in the house of Tom Bombadil. We've hit some pretty big conceptual um, uh, moments at the beginning of chapter 7, which has been really fun. Uh, and I've been having a great time thinking about Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. Uh, and it's really interesting to me the way that Tolkien, uh, through considering Tom Bombadil, uh, and Goldberry, uh, you know, it, it, like how immediately, as soon as we get there, right, he starts digging into these, um, like conceptual ideas, right? You know, this whole question about like, who are you without your name? Like, you know, what does it mean to be you? And what does it mean to be the master? And I mean, like, it, like Goldberry barely opens her mouth before we start getting into, into like pretty deep waters, right? So um, that's really kind of fun. Uh, so, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I, this is why, of course, we've been going slowly, even for this, uh, uh, for these sessions here, uh, on the next, um, uh, you know, in, in these, in these last few weeks. And it doesn't look like speeding up much soon because if, if all goes well and we go super fast tonight, we'll get to their dreams. And, and, you know, remember we spent the an entire class talking about Frodo's dream in Crick Hollow. So, uh, you know, we'll see about that. But anyhow, all right. Uh, so let's, uh, let's dig into things. First, um, I wanted to, um, uh, acknowledge Lincoln made a, a really long and interesting post about, uh, 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 mastery, uh, into thinking about Tom Bombadil being master and what that means. Lincoln, I was particularly interested by the connections you were making to the idea of of anarchism and Tolkien's interest in anarchism, which I think is, is really relevant there. Um, the one thing I'd add to that, by the way, is, uh, it, so Lincoln was suggesting among other things that, uh, Tom Bombadil is kind of, uh, connected in a sense, in a sort of an indirect sense, uh, to Tolkien's admiration for the, for the, for the concept of anarchism in, 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 in one, uh, in one sense, not whiskered men with bombs, uh, as he's specified. But, um, but Lincoln, the thing I would add to that is that essentially the, the Shire is, uh, Tolkien's primary contemplation of anarchy. Like if you want to know what, what Tolkien meant by anarchy, when he said that he, you know, that he, he sort of considered himself an anarchist, um, the Shire is the illustration of that. Like, uh, if I, I think if I had to point to one person who was the, um, like the perfect illustration of Tolkien's political views, it would be uh, it would be Farmer Cotton. Actually, I think Farmer Cotton is is really the the sort of the political ideal, right? That is like the farm the farmer, right? The the the, the freeholder who runs his own affairs, doesn't let anybody boss him. Um, you know, is kind and generous and helpful, supporting the community, uh, uh, eager and willing to work together uh, and to rally with his neighbors. Um, you know, in in times of trouble or against uh, or against a common enemy, but uh, holds no truck with anybody else telling him what to do. Like that's kind of what Tolkien meant by anarchy. Um, but, um, but yeah, the, Julia, the not whiskered men with bombs, that's a quotation from the uh, from his letter, because, of course, you know, remember, in the early 20th century, um, when you talked about anarchists or anar uh, the whole uh, concept of anarchism, um, the first thing that people would think of were like, you know, those guys who tried to blow stuff up, basically, <laughs> like that was that was kind of the stereotypical concept of what what an anarchist was. Um 
so uh, so yeah, he was specifying. No, I, I'm not a dynamiter. I, I'm just uh, I, I'm just uh, kind of think people should be left to do um, their own thing. Anyway, um, but um, so let's. Um, yeah, Lincoln, that's an interesting distinction. Lincoln says, he says, it's like Tom Bombadil is the pure spirit of anarchy uh, and Farmer Cotton is what a real fallen person living as an anarchist might look like. Yeah, well, that's a good way to think about it. I mean, you're, you're right that Tom Bombadil is in that sense more abstract, right? Um, there's, there's, I mean, unlike Farmer Cotton, right, who is like a real person might actually be conceivably. I mean, you're right. Tom Bombadil is not an attempt to depict a, a real person, right? He's, he's not like a real option. He is more more abstract than that, more almost allegorical uh, than that. And that's how Tolkien talked about it, as almost allegorical. But anyway, um, uh, let's, uh, so let's, let's, uh, but so anyway, so I always want to acknowledge that Lincoln made a long post with some really interesting points. I wanted to, to commend that to you. Uh, and uh, I, I wanted to address one other question, Brandon's question, which is an excellent one, which I couldn't remember if I had talked about. This is one of those things. One of, and, and please bear with me. And, and, and if, if I seem to be slipping a cog on this kind of thing, please feel free to remind me because my memory for what I've said and where is really horrible. So, you know, I'm doing so many different things, uh, so many different broadcasts and stuff, uh, pursuing so many different tracks that I kind of forget in which class I said what. Um, and so I, I couldn't remember if we talked about this, Brandon, or not. So I'm glad you brought it up. Um, okay. Uh, Brandon asks, I was wondering, when did Tom Bombadil get added to the Lord of the Rings? He's such a strange figure, which I love about him. He doesn't really fit with the Silmarillion characters at all, and is just generally an odd figure in general. Did the adventures of Tom Bombadil, uh, that is the poem, predate the Lord of the Rings, and Tolkien added this fully formed character to his work? Or was he part of the Lord of the Rings creation process that he later fleshed out in the adventures poem? Okay, Um, the sequence. Definitely, the poem came first. And not before the Silmarillion material, of course, but 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 definitely before the Lord of the Rings. In fact, he was writing the Adventures of Tom Bombadil poem at about the same time that he was writing The Hobbit. So, uh, before many years before the publication of The Hobbit, it was 1930. Oh shoot, I'm forgetting. Was it 31, 33? Anyway, early 30s. Uh, the poem was published. Uh, in the Oxford Magazine. Um, and then, I'm forgetting the date. If anybody remembers the date, remind me. It's 31 or 33, I think. Anyway, early 30s. Um, so the poem definitely, definitely came first. Um, but the answer to when did he get added to the Lord of the Rings, the answer is very early, very early in the process. Remember I mentioned when we were looking at the, you know, when, when we got to the clearing and we're looking at Tom Bombadil's house in the middle of the woods and we were kind of talking about and making jokes about which houses, right? And I mentioned Tolkien's first impulse, if we go back to the very first outline, like brainstorming that he did for, okay, like the long expected party was the original concept, right? And so we get the protagonist out of the Shire, and he goes and has adventures. What adventures does he have? Like, what stuff can he encounter on the road? And uh, and so I mentioned that Tolkien's very first impulse was witch house, right? He who's traveling in the woods, and he he meets like, and w- literally, we know nothing of what Tolkien was gonna, was thinking of in that plot line, other than those two words, witch house. So could have been anything, right? But anyway, okay, so. Uh, so that was his very, very first impulse. He quickly abandoned that after that first outline. That concept never comes back again. But Tom Bombadil, 
was his second choice, right? Very, very, very early on, before he wrote any of the prose narrative, um, when he was still in that brainstorming mode trying to think of what to say, hey, maybe they meet Tom and Goldberry, um, was like, so if Witch House was his first impulse, Tom and Goldberry was his second impulse. So it, it dates way back to the very, very, very beginning, long before he had even... Um, not only before he had begun to integrate the Lord of the Rings with the Silmarillion, and, and an argument that I've made and I've been making um, in the Mythgard Academy sessions, like the Return of the uh, of the Shadow uh, uh, sessions in particular, um, I've been arguing that when he sets out to write the Lord of the Rings, he had did not have it integrated uh, with the Silmarillion. Like that the Lord of the Rings world, the Hobbit world, and the Lord of the Rings world initially um, is not the same world as the Silmarillion. He's recycling the material, but it it's not... The stories of the Silmarillion are not history to the characters in the Lord of the Rings at first, right? Then he comes to that moment where he makes that decision to just bring those two worlds together, and it's like... And the rest is history, right? Um... But that wasn't initially the plan. So, Brandon, the integration of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, or, or the, the, the importing of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry into the story, predates the moment where he uh, uh, decided to integrate it with the Silmarillion. And I think that this is a really important point. I think that this is really interesting, Brandon, because if I had to guess, and this is just a guess, I mean, I don't know, but if I had to guess... I don't think he would have done it had he already made that decision. That is, I, 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 I can't imagine. He kept him in, of course, which is very like Tolkien. Um, as I've said before also in talking about, and, and as, we've, as we've seen many times as we've been going through Tolkien's uh, drafts and revisions and things uh, look in our series looking at the history of Middle-earth, um, Tolkien is extremely conservative in the sense that he keeps stuff. Like, he, he does not, he is very slow to chuck stuff out that he's already written. He'd much rather change things around and retcon it and make it all work rather than, uh, uh, rather than just ditching stuff that he already wrote. He does that sometimes, but he's pretty reluctant to do it. So he keeps Tom and Goldberry in. Not a shock. Um, but uh, more importantly, again, I don't think... Uh, had he already made the decision from the beginning that the Silmar- that you know the Lord of the Rings was going to take place in the Silmarillion world, I can't see him bringing Tom Bombadil and Goldberry into it. Um, but again, having done it already before he makes that decision, he keeps them in. Um, so I think that. Um, uh, so okay, so so that's that's the answer to the first question. You're right that he doesn't fit with the Silmarillion characters, and the, to me, the fascinating thing about that, Brandon, is that he keeps them in. Like after he's decided this is the Silmarillion world, right? Um, and many other of the characters, he sort of takes and um, and uh, uh, fits, right? He sort of alters them. So that they'll fit. Like Elrond, for instance. Elrond is in The Hobbit, but he's not exactly the Silmarillion Elrond. We're going to make him the Silmarillion Elrond, right? So he, he, he does some adjustments of Elrond's character. Um, uh, but he uh, he's... Okay, so Tom Bombadil, he doesn't make adjustments, like any adjustments of Tom Bombadil's character. I mean, Tom Bombadil is the way he is, and, and, and most of that... I mean, there are some, there are some revisions... But the bulk of chapters 
six and seven, the stuff that we've been doing is there in the first, in the, the first time he drafted it. So if you go back into the return of the shadow and you look at the phase two uh, narrative, that's where this old forest stuff comes in and the Tom Bombadil narrative comes in. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's all there. I mean, there, there are some differences, but Tom Bombadil is recognizably, recognizably Tom Bombadil already, uh, and that doesn't really change. Um, so he doesn't, he doesn't um, fit him in. He doesn't. He doesn't go back and retroactively say like, okay, considering the Silmarillion scale, basically, he doesn't do the same thing that so many fans want to do and wish that Tolkien did do. Right. Or that we do ourselves for fun. That is to say, OK, well, so given the schema and the so like in reading the Valaquenta, according to the Valaquenta, uh, like where would Tom Bombadil fit? So logically, Tom Bombadil must be one of the Maiar. Right. And probably he is affiliated with this Vala. Right. We think that way. Right. In trying to fit these things in and make it work within the schema. Tolkien didn't do that. In fact, Tolkien actively resisted doing that. And that resistance is fascinating to me. He says in his letters, like, I think it's good that some things remain mysterious. And, he, and when he talks that way, he often he cites Tom Bombadil often as one of those things that he decided he wanted to keep mysterious. But that itself is revealing, like, why Tom Bombadil? There are lots of other mysteries, right, that he could have that he could have left. Um, and a couple others, like the Antwives, for instance. Um, but uh, but anyway, you know, he, he to me, Tom Bombadil is a very conspicuous uh, mystery, and he leaves him a mystery in some uncharacteristic ways. Um, but I think, again, I think Tolkien kind of liked that about Tom Bombadil in the end. Um, so, um, anyway, I, 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 uh, I think it's fascinating that Tolkien decided to leave him in as he is. Uh, and I think it's, I think it's really cool. I think that it really worked. Um, uh, so he is, it is the, the poem character that he is fleshing out to make Tom Bombadil. Um, by the way, there's a little bit of, there's some kind of interesting interplay there, um, that is between the original poem and the, and the version in the story. When I say interplay, I mean some things that are almost like inside jokes. One I've mentioned, right? How like the, the 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 line we talked about this last week, the line when Tom Bombadil lists the food that's on the table, right? When he comes in from outside, and that that's word for word, you know, two lines from the poem uh, describing the wedding feast of him and Goldberry. And we talked about that how cute that is that they're constantly recapitulating their marriage, you know, their wedding. Um, but so I mean that's one kind of inside joke, right? What 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 they're serving for hobbits to the hobbits is an inside joke if you've read the poem. But there are other things which are even more playful, um, like for instance when Goldberry says explaining how Tom Bombadil is master in the passage we looked at last time. When Goldberry says um, no one has ever caught Tom, you know, like dancing on the hilltops or. But the whole poem is about Tom getting caught over and over and over again, right? Like in the first section of the poem, Goldberry catches him. In the second part of the poem, Old Man Willow catches him. In the third part of the poem, the Badger family catches him. Like they all catch him and they all imprison him. Now he gets out, right? You know, he puts the, you know, he tells them all to go to sleep and they do go to sleep and they let him go. He's particularly threatening to the Badgers who are much more cowed uh, than the others. Uh, He and Old Man Willow have a bit of banter going on. Um... So, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, 
it's it's funny. I mean, again, if you know the poem, that line "Nobody ever caught Tom" is is conspicuous, right? It, it, it's, it's it reads like an inside joke, right? Uh, like you'll find that line particularly funny if you if you know the poem. Um, but um, anyway. Yeah, exactly, Tony. They can catch him, but they can't hold him. But of course, it's it's specifically the catching that Goldberry mentions, um, and uh, and you know you can say, of course, and I think it's true that that's one way in which Tom is different in the book. Right? I mean, it's not exactly the same as in the poem. Things aren't precisely the same, um, but uh, you know that's that's really the chief way in which he's different. Tom's mastery is of a different kind. Um, in uh, uh, the quality is similar. That is the tone of it. Like Tom, Tom's tone in asserting his mastery and being fearless, right, um, is very similar in the book and the poem. But uh, this idea of no one has ever caught him. You know, Tom is the master. He has no fear. He just kind of like basically, the, you know, Goldberry talks like nobody would mess with Tom, right. Um, whereas in the poem, everybody messes with Tom, right? They just, he, he puts a stop to it, but everybody's messing with him. Um, uh, yeah, Matt, I agree. The, 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 uh, the irony of that statement by, is made more poignant by the fact that it's Colberry who's saying it. And she was the first one who caught him, uh, uh, in the poem. Absolutely. Um, but, um. Yeah, so Tony, who is supposed to have uh, written the poem after it was retconned in? I'm trying to remember. I think it's Bilbo. I think it's supposed to be a Bilbo poem. Um, If somebody has The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, if you have like the Tolkien reader or the new or even better, uh, which I so strongly recommend, the new edition of... um, of the Adventures of Tom Bombadil that was just published two years ago by uh, by Hammond and Skull, um, Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull edited it, um, and that is super valuable because it gives the original, uh, hitherto unpublished versions in, in some cases of all of the poems. So like the, the poems that Tolkien originally wrote before he revised and retconned them for the uh, uh, for the collection in in the sixties. Totally worth it. Oh my goodness! Like the original copy of the Bumpus, uh, uh, for instance. Like, or oh my goodness, the original cop, the original version of the Oliphant poem. Oh man, treat yourself to the original version of the Oliphant poem, which is hilarious, absolutely hysterical. Um, but anyway, anyway, okay. Uh, so if you if if anyone has either of those editions, look at the at the the the, the preface, the, the the introductory matter that Tolkien wrote for that, uh, and tell me whom to whom does he attribute the adventures of Tom Bombadil within the the Middle Earth frame that he gives to that collection? I think it's Bilbo, but uh, um, but it might not be. So it could be it could be Frodo or Sam. So. Um, let me know what you what you find if you guys if any of you have it with you. I don't have it in reach. Mine's over there. Um, okay, cool. So let's uh, let's move on. Let's get back to Tom Bombadil. All right. So we just had them going to their excellent uh, and extremely cozy rooms uh, to refresh themselves. Oh, uh, Aragorn, the collection is, it's, it's published, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil is the title of the poem collection that, uh, that Tolkien published, uh, in 1963, I believe. And, uh, you can find it published under that title, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, um, 
uh, in the recent edition by uh, edited by Hammond and Skull. It's also in the Tolkien Reader, which has been around for a long time. Okay. Uh, before long, washed and refreshed, the hobbits were seated at the table, two on each side, while at either end sat Goldberry and the master. It was a long and merry meal. Though the hobbits ate, as only famished hobbits can eat, there was no lack. The drink in their drinking bowls seemed to be clear, cold water, yet it went to their hearts like wine and set free their voices. The guests became suddenly aware that they were singing merrily, as if it was easier and more natural than talking. At last Tom and Goldberry rose and cleared the table swiftly. The guests were commanded to sit quiet, and were set in chairs, each with a footstool to his tired feet. There was a fire in the wide hearth before them, and it was burning with a sweet smell, as if it were built of applewood. When everything was set in order, all the lights in the room were put out, except one lamp and a pair of candles at each end of the chimney-shelf. Then Goldberry came and stood before them, holding a candle, and she wished them each a good night and deep sleep. Um, yeah, um, Ricky Ticky, I agree. Great name, by the way. Um, it says, I aspire to be a host like this. Yeah, this is doing it right. I mean, the hospitality of Goldberry and Tom Bombadil is really exemplary. Um, and, um, this is, on the one hand, a beautiful picture of benevolent and peaceful hospitality, right? Just the, the, the sort of whole, that the concord and peacefulness of this, especially when contrasted to not only the, the fearfulness, but the eeriness of the day that they've had, right? I mean, it's one thing to go into a forest where you are in danger and get lost, right? It's another thing, um, to have that day be marked by the unfolding realization that the trees themselves were actively conspiring against you, uh, leading up ultimately to two of you being, two of your party being ingested by the gigantic tree in the middle of the forest, right? So they've had a weird day, not just a a stressful day, not just a a, a fearful uh, day, but a a queer day, right? As Sam might say, uh, a, a deeply uncanny day. Um, and so to end with this kind of peacefulness and that image of them sitting around the table together, that image of them putting their feet up on their individual footstools uh, is so calm and comforting and lovely. Uh, I, I just love the effect of this overall passage. It makes me relaxed just to read it. Um, uh, yeah. Now, um, good, Stephanie. There are a couple observations that I would make specifically about this passage, and Stephanie, you just anticipated the first of those. Isn't it interesting that Tom is referred to as the master here, right? Uh, as if to follow up directly on the conversation that Goldberry just had with them, right? While at either end sat Goldberry and the master, right? Um, Frodo asked, who is he, right? And she said, he is. He is as you have seen him. He is the master, right? Uh, and so that's how he's ident- identified by the narrator here uh, on the next page. Uh, and that's really interesting, right? Um, that the narrator himself kind of embraces that identification of Tom as if that's the, sort of the, the essence of Tom. And remember, as I mentioned in my subtitle, but I don't think I actually talked about when we got to that passage, when Tom comes in from outside, having been tending their tired beasts, and by the way, even that, right? You think about the, the levels of hospitality involved with that 
I'll take care of your ponies so that you don't have to trouble. The thoughtfulness that Tom is showing both to them so that they don't have to uh, to, to pursue that wearisome task and can just go ahead to resting themselves, but of course also the hospitality that he's showing to the ponies. Um, remember, hobbits, ponies all, we are fond of parties. The ponies were always involved uh, in his invitation, and he, he wasn't... Uh, um, he didn't have... Um, he wasn't issuing a, an invitation for four. He was an, he was issuing an invitation for nine, right? Uh, five ponies and four hobbits. Anyway, um, when he comes in, he's crowned with leaves, right? He he has he has a crown of leaves on his head, just like the Elven King did back in the Hobbit, right? So we see him uh, coming in the first time when they are in his home and they see him. He comes through the door. He's wearing this woodland crown. Right immediately after Goldberry has just explained that he's the master. Um, so again, Stephanie, I do see the narrator kind of reinforcing this idea uh, for us here. Um, we are being asked to think sort of lingeringly about the idea of Tom Bombadil being master. And in the context of this passage, right, one of the effects of that is to, um, is to indicate that... Um, Tom's part of Tom's mastery clearly is evidenced in his hospitality. It shows like, he's he is he is being a good master, right? Uh, in uh, um, in showing the kind of hospitality that he does uh, to his guests. Um, yeah, and Tony exactly. Tony says looking after horses after a ride is a lot of work that most modern people don't appreciate. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, when you arrive at your destination, you're not done, right? It's not you don't just park it, park the horse in the garage, and you know turn off the engine and walk away, right? There's there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. Uh, so your uh, your journey might be over, but your labor is far from over uh, at that point, especially if you're gonna if you're gonna you know, really take good care of the ponies. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. Just looking back to see, um, Oh, sorry, Aragorn, you had asked uh, a book where you could find the early versions of the poems. That is uh, published under the title The Adventures of Tom Bombadil, and it was just published a couple years ago, 2015, maybe, um, 2014 at the earliest, uh, just very recently. Um, uh, And again, the editors are Wayne Hammond and Christina Skull, uh, S-C-U-L-L and H-A-M-M-O-N-D. Hammond and Skull, who are uh, uh, a married couple and both wonderful Tolkien scholars who have produced such wonderful Tolkien scholarship over the years. Um, Yeah, let's see. Okay. I was just looking back to see if anyone had found the answer to my question. I don't think anyone did. About who was credited with writing The Adventures of Tom Bombadil in the preface. Anyway, okay. Um... Good, good. Um, yeah, Blue Wizard, th- their books on Tolkien's artwork are just priceless. Uh, absolutely priceless. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, okay. Um, 
And yes, Matt, I agree. The important thing here, you know, he says one of the interesting things about this is that it's it's very homey rather than regal. So, Matt, you're right. While the mastery of Tom Bombadil is being emphasized, that doesn't mean that a hierarchy is being asserted here, right? He is waiting on them, right? He is showing a very humble kind of hospitality, um, hospitality more of the uh, sort of New Testament foot washing variety than, you know, of the, uh, you know, of the uh, regal condescension kind of hospitality. And I don't mean, I'm not using the word condescension in the traditional 20 and 21st century insulting way. I don't. That's Condescension is a good thing uh, in that context. Um, but that's not the kind of hospitality that Tom Bombadil shows. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree, Matt. The tone is much more like when uh, Frodo and Pippin and Sam were welcomed into the family meal at the Maggot household, right? Um, that does seem to be more like the atmosphere here, more than um, you know. Think of, uh, think forward to uh, Pippin uh, having uh, his eating cakes, right? Tea cakes or whatever they are, um, with uh, Denethor, right? As he's giving his report to Denethor. Um, this is very different, right? Um, even the feasting uh, in Edoras is different uh, than we have here with Tom Bombadil. But, anyway, okay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Juliet, uh, if you look in the... There's a preface. Tolkien wrote an introduction where he goes through the poems one by one and talks about the fic- the fictional provenance of each of the poems. So it's in the actual preface, preface at the beginning of the book that you will, uh, that you would see it. Um, okay. Um, the other point, uh, what was the other point I was going to make? Oh, of course the, the drink, right? Um, We saw before, right, end of chapter six, that when they were being invited to come in, right, um, they have been invited. Tom's been all about merriment from the beginning, right? He's been very merry all the way through, and he invited them, and he invited them to join in the fun, right? Now let the fun begin. Let us sing together, says Goldberry, when she when we first hear her voice, as she is echoing... Um, uh, as she is echoing, to, and remember the phrase that she echoes, the phrase that Tom ends with, and the phrase that Goldberry begins with when they do their little, like, duet of invitation at the very end of chapter six, is, let us sing together, right? That is, that is the definition of the fun, right? That's that, that is the fun, that is, a, that, that is the incipient fun to which Tom and Goldberry are referring. It seems to be, um, it seems to be uh, uh, very much a part of a part of that. Ah, Tony, thank you. Tony says uh, uh, the introduction says it was a traditional poem from Buckland. Okay, um, okay, good, and that makes sense, of course, right? Because the the Bucklanders would have uh, uh, legends of Tom Bombadil, uh, because according to later versions, that is post Lord of the Rings versions of the story, Tom Bombadil goes and visits. Um, uh, Farmer Maggot and other people in the marriage. Like he's known in uh, in in, so he sometimes comes to visit and he's known there. Um, and Tom Bombadil included that gets included uh, in the sequel poem that Tolkien wrote, though he wrote this one in the '60s, well after everything, right? Um, and uh, that is 
Bombadil goes boating. And in that one, you can see it, it narrates the story of Tom Bombadil going to visit Farmer Maggot. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> so you, sorry, I just looked over and I'm seeing uh, uh, comments about, uh, about brandy and cigars. No, not exactly. Brandy and cigars. But I, I see where you're going from there. It is interesting that Goldberry excuses herself, almost like um, a... Victorian lady would, ex- you know, where the the women would excuse themselves first, and the men would stay at the table having brandy and cigars. Um, uh, Tom, as you were as you were saying, there aren't brandy and cigars, and she just seems to be turning in a little earlier than the rest of them. But there still is that kind of that kind of, uh, um, in a sort of more rustic sense, less formalized. They're not they're not dressed for dinner, right? Um, in the again in the uh, in the sort of late Victorian sense. But it's uh, uh, it, it does kind of be, seem to sort of partake of that atmosphere, and the men do have some talk among themselves, right after Goldberry leaves, as we'll see. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's see. Oh yeah, but the water, right? What they're drinking. Um, the merriment involves singing together, as I was just saying, um, and they find themselves. They become su- they became suddenly aware that they were singing merrily as if it were easier and as if it was easier and more natural than talking right um, that is really interesting right um, that they and because we've already seen this happen right it happened already with frodo right when frodo meets goldberry for the first time and he finds himself bursting into song and then he like realizes what he's doing and gets all embarrassed about it right um but before he did uh uh before he did she um you know she she was she was very pleased it seemed to be the perfectly appropriate response and marianne i agree with you um it is like they're entering into Tom's world, right? Um, and this kind of, you know, Marianne, that kind of goes back to what we were looking at before, when you know, from the very first and when they entered Tom's house. And we've been talking about how interesting it is that it's like, it's very familiar to them, right? Um, uh, less keen and lofty, right? Um, than meeting with elves, right? Something nearer to their experience, and yet it's still strange, right? Um and we can kind of see those things, those things at work there, right? On the one hand, the hospitality of Tom and the room and everything else is, is comforts that are very familiar to hobbits. And yet, they've entered Tom's world, Marianne, as you say, and that comes out in their speech, right? They are, um, they talk and sing like Tom, and that's, um, uh, you know, that's clearly, um, Important, a, a really important element of being there in his world, of talking his language, right? Of uh, uh, and and again, that they do this unconsciously. They're brought into this um, by becoming his guests, by sitting down at his table. They are brought into his world, and that means they're changed. They're affected, right? Um, they. Do, it's uh, uh, yes, enchantment. Uh, Tom, as you say, is all about song in every way. Uh, definitely. Um, um, yes, yes, it's all part of it. Um, 
Yeah, Arthur asks, could the queer drink be alcoholic? I'm not sure that's sort of... I'm not sure that the question is exactly the right question. I mean, it's a sensible response, but I don't think that's exactly the right question. Um, It's not that, like, Tom has spiked the water, right, with booze, right? It's that the effect it has on them is like the effect of alcohol. Indeed, it seems to me to go the other way around, right? That is, the effect that the, the clear, cold water from the drinking bowls of Tom Bombadil, the effect that this water has on them, like, alcohol is a pale shadow of what this water um, really does, right? Um, what this water naturally does. There are lots of negative effects of alcohol, right? Um, and I'm not even just thinking about long-term effects like cirrhosis and stuff like that. But I mean, you know, that, like, I, you're, you're not going to become like a sloppy or belligerent drunk on uh, Tom's clear cold water, clearly, right? Um, it's like all of the good things about alcohol without the bad things about alcohol. Um, and I think it's equally clear that they're not going to be hungover in the morning, right? So, um, again, I think it's not... It's If we're thinking about it as alcohol, I think we're missing the point, right? Um, it's like alcohol, or more importantly, I think, I, how I would say alcohol is like this, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, Catriona, you're right. It doesn't say that it's water, just that it seemed to be water. Um, but it doesn't say anything else that it is, right? It, the drink in their drinking bowl seemed to be clear cold water, yet it went to their hearts like wine, right? So the effect of it, the, the look and the taste and the feel of it is like water. The effect of it was like wine. Those two comparisons are all we know about it. What is it exactly? Where does it come from? We don't know. This is the drink of Tom Bombadil. And those of you who are, um, uh, those of you who are, are thinking about end draft, as I know, I saw a couple of you, uh, um, a couple of you mentioning that earlier on. Um, it's, um, uh, I think that that's an apt comparison. Um, this comes first though. Ent draft is like this, not this like ent draft. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, in the sense that, and we'll watch, right? What is ent draft, right? End draft is water that is enchanted, right? Water which Treebeard sings over and makes it into ent draft, right? So therefore it's sort of water infused with the song and power of Treebeard. This water presumably is the same thing, or at least the same sort of thing. Um, uh, though again, we don't see him, uh, we don't see him making it. Remember also, we have another precedent for this. Um, and that is, uh, the, the liquid that was in their flasks after the, you know, in, in their water bottles after they left the elves, right? The elves slipped them a little something in their, in, in their water skins, remember? Um, and it was gold and it went to their heads right away. Um, again, does that mean it was alcoholic? We kind of talked about this at the time. Uh, it was, again, at least like alcohol. Um, it was less clear about, you know, what it did was it gave them courage, right? They were soon snapping their fingers at Black Riders after drinking some of that, right? Um, uh, 
But uh, this is a little, the sort of merriment involved here is a little bit more, I want to say pure, though that's perhaps a misleading word. Um, yeah. Arthur, that's a great way to think about it. He says that, that, that what, what they're drinking here at the table seems to be something like the unfallen ancestor of alcohol that one could imagine existing in the Garden of Eden uh, before the fall of man. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's, a, that's, an, that's an excellent way uh, to think of it. Um, uh, just as the idea that, like, just as once before, before sin, uh, you know, the concept of sin came into the world, so, you know, th- like, things like, you know, sex and pleasure and enjoyment were all there, but they were untainted uh, by sin uh, and by corrupt desire, so too there was uh, this sort of paradisic I, you know, form of alcohol, right? That gave all of the elevation of spirit uh, of spirits and uh, alleviation of anxiety and 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 worry and uh, and concern that alcohol gives, without any of the fallen elements or interacting with our bodies and our minds and spirits in any of the negative ways that alcohol can. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tom Hillman says, there's a Mythmoot paper to be written comparing the effects of of, uh, of water on characters in The Lord of the Rings and in Van Morrison's And It Stoned Me. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll leave that to you, Tom. I don't know that one. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Um, so let's... Hey, let's go on. Second passage. Have peace now. She says, here's uh, Goldberry's... Um, Benediction, right? Have peace now, she said, until the morning. Heed no nightly noises, for nothing passes door and window here save moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop. Good night. She passed out of the room with a glimmer and a rustle. The sound of her footsteps was like a stream falling gently away downhill over cool stones in the quiet of night. Tom sat on a while beside them in silence, while each of them tried to muster the courage to ask one of the many questions he had meant to ask at supper. Sleep gathered on their eyelids. Um, oh, by the way, and I missed it. Somebody had talked... I, 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 I forget who said this before in the comments, so feel free to remind me that it was you. Um, but somebody had pointed out that if, as we were discussing last week, following up... I. Irindus's brilliant observation that Goldberry is not a spirit of the water, but a spirit of the water lilies, a spirit of the water, of the flowers that grow by the water. Of course, it makes sense that she would retire first, right? Because she's a flower. She closes up when the sun goes down, right? So naturally, Goldberry is going to be early to bed and early to rise. So naturally, she, she's not going to be a night owl, right? Because flowers aren't night owls. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a brilliant observation. Absolutely works. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay, let's see. Um, so let's look at what she tells him. Have peace now, right? Heed no nightly noises. So she gives them two commands. She's using, she's using the imperative, right? Have peace until the morning, which is interesting, right? Once once dawn comes, you know, you're on your own, right? You can you're gonna have peace or not. But for the night, have peace until the morning. Heed no nightly noises. Um uh, this is this is both of these are our commands, right? Instructions. I'm not saying they're like 
imperious commands that she's uh, that she's giving to them. But, but they're not statements of fact. The next one is a statement of fact, right? For nothing passes door and window here save moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop. That is why. That fact is why they should heed no nightly noises. Don't worry, right? Uh, but now, again, notice the implicit... Well, notice what... Notice the implication. Both of her injunctions at the beginning and the statement that follows it, Right? And that is, you are probably going to be tempted to be afraid, right? You are going to hear noises in the night. Your night is likely to be imperfectly peaceful in and of itself. And again, this is very Tom Bombadilian, right? Like, just as he left them behind and left them to go through the scary forest by themselves to his house, right? His house is still in the old forest. They're still surrounded by the old forest, and they're going to hear it. Right, they're gonna hear the, um, they're gonna hear the 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 noises of the night. The old forest um, is gonna be uh, is gonna be audible to them, and therefore there's going to be some reason, some excuse to fear. Um, but, uh, but yeah, exactly as Gilgonthir says. Um, Tom's house is not a place of perfect peace or, peace or rest, but it's a safe place. It's wild and natural, like Tom and Goldberry. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, exactly. Um, and yet, Tony, it is interesting that Tolkien puts benedictions in the mouths of people who have power to make them happen. There is something incantatory, right? There is something, uh, there is something spell-like in uh, in Goldberry's words here, um, that she is urging them, um, not just counseling them, right? she's not advising them, right? She is. Uh, this is like a spell of peace that she is giving them. But but again, but it's a warning. Right, um, there's an implicit warning in it. Um, by the way, in the context of what she has just said, when she says "good night," um, it sounds a little bit less, a little bit less. Uh, I don't know what to say. Kalisha, it's like Bilbo's "good morning," right? Um, it makes you think a little bit more about what, um, you know, what's good about the night, right? And what is that? What does that stuff mean? Um, what does she mean when she's wishing them a good night? Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. And Stephanie, you're right. Her statement is very concrete. Um, she knows for sure that nothing menacing is going to be able to reach them, right? So she's able to state that as a fact. Um, nothing passes door and window save moonlight and starlight and the wind off the hilltop. Those three things are the only things that can come into the house. Those the only, the only three things that are welcome. Um, and then she passes out of the room with a glimmer and a rustle. The rustle, see, again, like the reeds against each other. See, Irendus, again, once you point it out, you can't, you can't not see it in every passage, right? Absolutely. Um, Tom sat on a while beside them in silence, while each of them tried to muster the courage to ask one of the many questions he had meant to ask at supper. Um, so they want to talk, they want to ask him questions. And here again, we can see that kind of, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, that sort of vaguely kind of Victorian culture, right, of, uh, you know, the men having some talk 
uh, after the after the lady of the house excuses herself. Yeah, um, but it's this is the moment where it begins to. This is less like um, Farmer Maggot now, right? As they are thinking about, um, they're thinking about wishing to ask him questions but feeling awkward and not knowing how to do it, right? Or where to start or, or you know, whether they can get courage to uh, um, uh, uh, to to actually ask him the question. Um, and yeah, Maeve and I agree, not not just Victorian, but 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 Edwardian. It's 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 not just from the past, it's it's a present uh um tradition uh for Tolkien. Um very much. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, and yeah, Tony, it is, I, I, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, Tony says the hobbits seem to be put in the role of children in Tom's house. That is more the feeling there, right? Um, I'm, I'm glad that you said that because again, I, I, I perceive in this paragraph, there seems to be more of a, I get less of a, were like you're part of the family gathered around the table. It was like that while they were eating, right? Now, um, the fact that they feel that they need courage in order to ask him questions, now they're operating on a different level, right? He's above them again. But it's not like Pippin needing courage in order to ask Denethor something. We'll see that later on, but this doesn't feel exactly like that. And Tony, I think that you've got it, right? It's more like a child trying to muster up the courage to ask a grown-up a question uh, to which he really wants the answer, but maybe he's not sure if he's going to get a straight answer to the question that he has, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Tiber says, Had the Black Riders found the hobbits at Tom's home, um, would they have been incapable of entering? Absolutely. There is zero chance that the Black Riders would get into Tom Bobadil's house. Um, there's a remember there's a there's a a memory of this fact. It's kind of an echo of this fact uh, in the published Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, remember at the uh, at the ford of Bruinen um, when Frodo goes gets to the other side of the ford and he turns around and raises his hand and says, "Go back, go back." Um, you know, he commands the black riders to stop and to turn around and go back. And the narrator says, "But he had not the power of Bombadil, right?" Um, Tom Bombadil can raise his hand and say to the black riders, "Stop, go back," and they would, um, they would obey him. And it's interesting because that comes from. An early draft in the, in that first draft I was talking to that phase two draft the very first time Tolkien drafted the Tom Bombadil section that happened um, as Tom is accompanying them from the Barrow Downs to the road they meet the Black Riders and the Black Riders come galloping up towards them and Tom Bombadil raises his hand and says stop and they immediately screech to a halt and then they run away from Tom Bombadil, so that when he gets to the Ford of Bruinen and Frodo tries to do the same thing, the narrator very naturally says, but he had not the power of Bombadil, right? And so that scene, that earlier scene, gets cut out of the narrative, but that line at the Ford of Bruinen stays, right? So that the, it's, the, the thing it's referring to isn't there anymore, but, but it's still there. And I think the reason he keeps it in is that it's still, it shows, it's, 
Tom Bombadil shows that even though that incident is gone, that kind of authority we see in Tom Bombadil, right? Tom Bombadil can rebuke the the willow tree and it'll, you know, regurgitate Merry and Pippin right away. Um, he can speak to the Barrow Whites, as we will see, before too much longer has passed, uh, and and they obey him, right? Um, so, I mean, it still, it still makes sense in the context, but yeah, there is no question, no question at all, that the Black Riders could not enter Tom Bombadil's house um, if, they, if they came. This is why, again thinking ahead, at the Council of Elrond, there's going to be a time when Elrond and the other elf lords are at least briefly entertaining the idea, should we send the Ring of Power to him? Because would Sauron himself be able to enter Tom Bombadil's house? If Sauron himself came in power to the Withywindle Valley and tried to get into Tom Bombadil's house, would he have the power to do so? Um, in the end, they decide he probably could. Um, but it's enough of a question. Right? It's up for debate, right? Could he or could he not? So therefore, I think it's clear that the ring raids, no way. Um, they they uh, they couldn't do that. Um, anyway, okay. So um, we're going to... Uh, uh, yeah, I'll come... I see several of you pointing to some later passages that we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. Um Aruran says, so is this to imply that, it, that if Tom Bombadil stood on the bridge in front of Minas Morgul, he could raise his hand and stop the war? No, because he's not master of Minas Morgul, right? So, no, he couldn't. Um, this is one of the things about Tom Bombadil that makes him complicated, right? Um, is the power in him or is the power in the land and his relationship to the land? Elrond implies the latter. Um, it's not that he is just this uber-powerful being who outranks everybody else and so therefore could, um, you know, boss around any other living being on the planet that he wanted to if he just bestirred himself to do it. That's not the implication. I think if he went wandering, he would be vulnerable. I don't think he'd, he would have authority. I don't think he would be master um, if he went to Minas Morgul, or Minas Tirith, or Bree, frankly. Um, and, anyway, you couldn't trust him to do it. Anyhow, as Gandalf will say. But we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. Um, so we'll we'll come back to that in the Council of Elrond. <laughs> A little teaser for the Council of Elrond later on. Um, let's keep going. And now we finally get to the line that you guys have already quoted dozens and dozens of times as we've talked about this stuff uh, so far. At last, Frodo spoke. Did you hear me calling, Master? Or was it just chance that brought you at that moment? And of course, we've I've already, we've already been alluding to this question uh, for weeks. Tom stirred like a man shaken out of a pleasant dream. Eh? What? said he. Did I hear you calling? Nay, I did not hear. I was busy singing. Just chance brought me then, if chance you call it. It was no plan of mine, though I was waiting for you. We heard news of you and learned that you were wandering. We guessed you'd come you'd come ere long down to the water. All paths lead that way, down to Withywindle. Old Grey Willow Man, he's a mighty singer, and it's hard for little folk to escape his cunning mazes. But Tom had an errand there that he dared not hinder. 
I noticed, by the way, I'm, I'm kind of straining his lines a little bit to emphasize the metrical quality of it so that you can hear it, right? It flows, of course, perfectly well as prose, but you, you hear the lines, right? Notice that not only do you get the lines intending to be with that gap in the middle, but there's even that spondaic feel at the beginning, right? Nay, I did not hear. I was busy singing. Just chance brought me then. We heard news of you. We guessed you'd come ere long. Old gray willow man... But Tom had an errand there, right? Uh, I guess it's just all of those lines are almost perfect. They just don't rhyme, right? Um, okay. Tom says he did not hear them calling, right? So we talked about this when we were talking about his initial song, right? So Tom is the one who delivers the line, again, that so many of you uh, love to quote, if chance you call it. Right. Um, uh, just chance brought me then, if chance you call it. Um, uh, notice his immediate paraphrase of that, though. Right. Just chance brought me then. It was no plan of mine, though I was waiting for you. Right. Um, that's what he means by if chance you call it. It was no plan of mine. It, there, there was probably a plan involved, right? That's why he doesn't really acknowledge chance. He, he's, he's, so he says, A, I didn't plan it, right? I was not setting out to meet you. I was not coming down the path because I heard you, right? It's, uh, um, so, yeah. No, I mean, so if that's what you're asking, right? Because notice Frodo has given him two two options, right? Did you hear me calling or was it just chance? So did you come and rescue us because you knew we were in trouble or was it random and we were just lucky, right? And what Bombadil's basically saying in response is neither, neither, right? Uh, no, the answer to the first part is no. No, I didn't hear you calling. No, I was not, it was no plan of mine. No, I was not setting out to rescue you. So, no, that didn't happen. But was it just chance? Was it random? It wasn't random, right? It wasn't any plan of mine, but that doesn't mean there wasn't a plan, right? Um, and, uh, 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 Marianne, I really like your observation. He seems to give them, he seems to offer them the freedom to call it chance if they want to, right? I think that's a, that is an element of that of that sentence that's often overlooked, right? If chance you call it, right? You can call it chance if you want to, I guess. Like if that's how you think of it, then yeah, I guess that's the answer, right? But he sh- and and notice he doesn't go off on this, right? It's not like he launches into a philosophical. You know, he doesn't actually give the Boethian argument, right? You know, he he doesn't he doesn't get all all uh, you know Boethius Book Five Prose One on this, right? And say like, well, there's no such thing as you know what human beings call chance is actually right. He doesn't explain. Right? He doesn't explain whose plan it might have been, right? He doesn't explain anything about it. He just suggests he doesn't believe that it was random, right? It was just somebody else's plan. And, of course, in saying that, he's speaking very similarly to the way that Gildor spoke of it. Remember, Gildor, when he was explaining why he was afraid to say too much, 
right? Because he didn't know the plan. He didn't know what was going on. He, he can see that more than chance um, was behind the meeting, right? That he, 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 he perceives immediately there is a plan here. Right. This is this is this is providence. We have been brought together for a purpose, but I don't know what the purpose is. So, like, I'm not going to just charge ahead thinking that I know what my role is supposed to be. I don't. So I'm going to be careful with that. Right. Um, That's how Gildor talks about it. Tom doesn't. He's not anxious about it. Right. He's not like I'm afraid to say too much, Um, but he does also perceive there's a plan. Um, there definitely, there's a reason that you guys have been, were brought here, why I was brought there together. Um, it was definitely not random. Um, and yes, Aruaran, that's, you're very correct. This is yet more evidence. Tom cannot possibly be Eru, unless he's lying, right? Unless he's, uh, uh, just trying to maintain his cover. Uh, yeah, he's referring to the providential plan, uh, of Luvatar <clears throat> and, saying that it's not his plan. So yeah, it's, it's uh, hard for me to justify that, uh, to reconcile that, that is to say. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, okay. Um, he does say, we heard news of you. So he wasn't ignorant of the fact that they were there. Um, we heard news of you and learned that you were wandering, so he knew that uh, Tom, that, that the hobbits, not only that they were in the forest, but that they had been entrapped by the forest, that they had um, knew that you were wandering. I, his word choice of wandering there. He, he knew that they were lost, right? Um, because he knows what that means. If they're lost in the forest, uh, that means they're going to end up down in the withy window, because old man Willow's going to make sure of that, right? So, you know, we guessed you'd come ere long down to the water. All paths lead that way, down to the withy window, right? Down to withy window. I always add the the there, which isn't there. Um, uh, James asked, is his news from the trees or from the elves? He doesn't say, we heard news of you and learned that you were wandering. Does he, is he referring to hearing news from Gildor? Um, and that he knows that Frodo is, a, is abroad wandering, not just in the forest, but more generally. That's possible. I tend to think, um, I tend to think not that he means here, we knew that you were in the forest. And the reason I say that is he immediately follows it up by saying, we guessed you'd come ere long down to the water. If he just knew what Gildor could tell them, that Frodo was off wandering, Gildor had no idea they were planning to go through the old forest, right? So why would Tom necessarily make the assumption that they're definitely going to go into the old forest, right? Um, I mean, maybe he just guesses or foreknows or whatever, but... um, but Gildor's message wouldn't necessarily imply that. Uh, so once they get into the forest, though, then it really is pretty much a done deal that they're going to end up down at the Withy Windle sooner or later. Um, but, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. It's possible, Tom, that a moth told him we can't rule that out, but I'm almost ready to rule that out, in fact. Um, old Grey Willow Man, he's a mighty singer, and it's hard for little folk to escape his cunning mazes. Um, but Tom had an errand there that he dared not hinder. This is Tom's real reason for going down. Um, uh, and he's explaining, this is why I was down at the water. Not because you were there. Not because I was going to seek you. Not because I was trying to rescue you. Notice how he's essentially said, I didn't, I wasn't going to save you. Like I wasn't going, I wasn't there on my, you know, on purpose to save you. I didn't know that you were in trouble. I didn't hear you calling. But he also says, we knew you were wandering. We knew you were in the forest. We knew you were going to come down to the withy window. Old Man Willow is a mighty singer. We knew Old Man Willow was going to draw you in. And then he was going to try to kill you. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we, we knew all that stuff was going to happen. But I wasn't trying to save you or anything. That was just a coincidence, right? Um, I'm not sure I 100% believe Tom. I mean, I do believe, Tom, that he was going on his errand to gather water lilies, which is clearly more important than it might originally seem. Um, uh, and yeah, Mad Violinist, his errand was more pressing, right? Uh, even than rescuing them. Um, did he have some sense that in doing that, at that time, he would be there to rescue them if they needed help. That seems possible. I don't know. But, um, yeah, Matthew, I agree. It sounds a little harsh at first. I wasn't there to save you. I had better things to do. Picking flowers, right? It can come across that way at first. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'm not trying to say that I doubt the veracity of Tom Bombadil and that he really was going to rescue them. But it's interesting that at the same time that he says, I wasn't going on purpose to rescue you, I had another errand there, he also says, we knew you were going to end up there, right? Um, and, you know, so we, had, we had heard about it, and I knew that that was going to be, uh, that that was going to be there. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah. Here's another way to think about that. What's Tom Bombadil doing? Going to pick water lilies for Goldberry, right? And especially in the context of the Goldberry discussion we had last week, we can see not only how um, important, but how beautiful that particular errand is. In pursuing that errand, he ends up in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. I wonder if Tom Bombadil's the reconciliation of these two facts, these two statements that Tom... Because he's made two statements, right? I wasn't going on purpose to save you. That wasn't my plan. But I knew that you were wandering and would end up down at the withy window and that you probably wouldn't be able to escape the cunning mazes of Old Man Willow, right? Those are the two things which we're sort of trying to understand how they fit together. Here's my theory about how those work together. Tom Bombadil essentially has faith, right? What does he do? He hears that they're wandering. Does he, like, go out of his way to say, like, okay, uh, Goldberry, let's cancel today's plans, 
right? And let's go down and we'll set up a rotation. You know, we'll keep an eye out, right? And uh, we'll kind of walk sentry duty down by the Withy Windle and, um, you know, and we'll arrange like a semaphore system to like signal to each other when you, you know, if you've... If, if you find the hobbits, you know, hoot twice like a barn owl and three times like a screech owl. and But that's not what he does, right? What does he do instead? He he just, he does him, right? Tom Bombadil is Tom Bombadil. And Tom Bombadil seems to trust that by being Tom Bombadil, right? By doing his, by being who he is and doing what he does, it will work out. And it does. Right, by being him, doing his thing, going down to the river to pick water lilies, guess what? He ends up at exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Because he knows, A, it wasn't his plan, but B, he knows there was a plan, right? So he's not going to be bothered. He's not going to be stressed out about it. He's not going to be... He doesn't even show the level of anxiety that Gildor shows. He's fine with it, right? Plan's going to work. So let it work, right? I'll just be me and do my stuff, and it'll work out. And true enough, there it goes. It does. Um, yeah, uh, uh, D. Schwab says it's interesting that Tom has no fear that this will be misunderstood. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. Uh, he doesn't seem to have the sense that he's insulting potentially, his guests. He doesn't seem to be at all anxious about that, right? Like, I couldn't be bothered to save you. I had flowers to pick, man. Surely you understand that, right? I mean, that could put somebody off, clearly. Um, but no, he doesn't seem to be in the least bit worried about that. In fact, instead, um, uh, uh, what I would suggest about that is that the sense in which he introduces this seems to be not I don't want to insult you but I totally had flowers to pick right but rather like he's letting them in on a secret right I mean, notice what Tom had an errand there that he dared not hinder um I had and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna let you in on how why that's important um he doesn't just leave it at, like, I'd, I'd pick flowers. Sorry. Tomorrow I have to reorganize my sock drawer. I can't be bothered. Right? That's not how he says it. He's like, I had a really important errand. Let me tell you about my really important errand. And surely then you'll see. Right? Um, Tom doesn't seem to be worried about that at all. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Marianne, yes. Tom Bombadil has Estelle. Yes. That, that he seems very casually to have uh, uh, Estelle. Um, yeah. Um, Man of Rohan, really great point. Uh, Tom Bombadil is master and fears nothing, yet he uses the word dares, like he dared not hinder. Um, by the way, I've always myself been a little bit confused about his pronoun there. Um, for a long, long time, I... Uh, Oh gosh, decades, I think, reading The Lord of the Rings. I assumed that the he in that last sentence referred to Old Man Willow, right? Old Grey Willow Man, he's a mighty singer, and it's hard for little folk to escape his cunning mazes, but Tom had an errand there that he, Old Man Willow, dared not hinder, right? So that it's a statement of his fearlessness, right? 
That's why he's waltzing by Old Man Willow, skipping and bounding by Old Man Willow, singing his songs unconcernedly, right? Because Old Man Willow might be a mighty singer, right? But there's no way Old Man Willow is going to try to interfere with Tom's errands, right? That's how I always read it. I'm no longer sure that that's the case. Um, I think that it could be. I mean, the, the immediate antecedent of he is Tom, speaking of himself in the third person. But Tom had an errand there that he dared not hinder. Tom's penchant for speaking in the third person makes that confuse. I mean, if he just spoke in the first person, it'd be a little clearer, right? But I had an errand there that I dared not hinder uh, would make that much more <laughs> clear, wouldn't it? Um, but uh, anyway... I think, so grammatically speaking, that seems the more immediate, um, the more immediate, uh, 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 antecedent to that pronoun. Um, as if Tom himself does not dare not to do his, and in the context that makes more sense. In the immediate context of the previous sentence, the he as old man Willow makes plenty of sense, right? Um, but I wasn't afraid of Old Man Willow. But you think about the whole paragraph. Why is he saying what he's saying? He's explaining about how he met them, right? And he just said, basically, he's explaining why, no, I didn't hear you calling. No, I wasn't particularly looking out for you. No, I wasn't hunting you or seeking you out to try to rescue you. Because Tom had an errand that he dared not hinder, right? It's, I, you know, let me explain. I couldn't delay my errand. It was super important. Sorry, I was busy at the time. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, Tom Hillman says, can one hinder one's own errand? Uh, it seems an odd way of speaking, but consider who we're talking about. Yeah, I agree. We wouldn't normally talk like that, right? But I mean, who does normally talk like Tom Bombadil? Um, you could hinder your own errand by like going to do something, like by procrastinating it, right? I mean, if you if you have an errand to do, but you decide, well, first, before I do my errand, I'm going to do this other thing, you could be said to be hindering your errand by your choice, right? Um, so I think that that's possible. <laughs> Lady Shmebulak says she does that all the time at Target. See, exactly. Like that can totally happen. Um, Tony, I don't know the significance of Tom speaking about himself in the third person so much. Um But I think it's connected to what we saw in the very first lines of his first song when we talked about it way back then. The fact that he sings about him. He doesn't just sing merrily. He sings merrily about merriment. He sing, there's, there's this, like, ref, this innocent and shameless reflexive and self-reflective thing. Like, Tom Bombadil is happy and he knows it. Right, <laughs> I mean, to, to quote the old, uh, the old Sunday school song, um, and he sings about it. Right, so it's it's not just that he's happy and sings about being happy or sings about happiness. He sings about the fact that he is happy. His own awareness of his own contentment and happiness is a big part of his happiness. Right, um, so uh, you know that's that's seems to be why again he's often singing about himself, observing himself, um, and singing about, like, he is the protagonist in his own story. Normally, that would make most people kind of self-absorbed, right? Kind of, I mean, that would be a symptom of pride, 
right? I think so much of myself, I barely notice anyone else. So let me tell you some more about me, right? But Tom Bombadil's not that kind of person um, because he's innocent, right? He's, he's, he doesn't have that corrupting pride element. Um, he is taking joy in how joyful he is, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so let's hear the revelation of his, uh, of his errand. This is ambitious at this particular time uh, to uh, move on to this slide with all the poetry, but we'll see what we can do. Tom nodded as if sleep was taking him again, but he went on in a soft singing voice. I had an errand there, gathering water lilies, green leaves and lilies white to please my pretty lady, the last ere the year's end to keep them from the winter, to flower by her pretty feet till the snows are melted. Each year at summer's end I go to find them for her, in a wide pool deep and clear far down withy window. There they open first in spring, and there they linger latest. By that pool long ago I found the river daughter, fair young Goldberry, sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating. Okay, what do you notice about the first, about the first lines here? Oops, I've let myself go AFK and didn't notice. Um, what, um, what do you notice? Observations first here. Well, first of all, notice what we were just talking about. He shifts. This whole poem is in the first person, right? And that seems to me significant. It seems to me to go along with that tone of, like, I'm going to let you in on a secret, right? Tom had an errand there that he dared not hinder, right? I've got to sing this, right? So I'm going to I'm going to chant to you and reveal the story. And notice how much more narrative this is. This is the tone of this poem is different in those two ways which we can notice right off the the top, right? That he's speaking in the first person, not in the third person, and that he's doing narrative, continuous narrative, which he hasn't been doing um, previously. Um, good, yeah, Mike, you were just noticing this, the, his shift to, to I. Yeah, yeah. Um, no rhyme. I wasn't even thinking about that. Yeah, Tony, you were just observing that too. His earlier verse did rhyme, right? This doesn't. Which makes it more like his spoken... It's it's like a compromise, right? It's like halfway between his regular prose, which is pretty much in the same meter. I mean... Sound-wise, rhythmically, if you just put this in prose, it would sound a lot like his other speeches, or rather his other speeches would sound a lot like this. 
But it wouldn't read quite the same way. I mean, just try to do it in prose. I had an errand there, gathering water lilies, green leaves and lilies white to please my pretty lady, the last ere the year's end to keep them from the winter, to flower by her pretty feet till the snows are melted. That would be a weird sentence in prose. Yeah, I mean, it works, but it would be a weird sentence in prose. The way that it continues to string on ideas with commas, right? That, that's natural enough in poetic lines, right? Uh, to have each line being this sort of like additional thing added on to the concept, which doesn't end until the end of the first quatrain, the, the end of the first four lines. Uh, in verse, that works really well. In prose, it would sound weird, right? So there are things about the way that the sentences are constructed, the way that the ideas are conveyed, which doesn't, which, which, which is less prosy, right? Um, even though the rhythm is so similar and it doesn't have rhyme. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, and th- you're right, Julia, that a lot of Tom's sentences are a bit weird. Again, it's because they're metrical, right? I mean, they, they, they fit the meter, so um, he, he's never speaking quite like, normally. <laughs> exactly. Um, but I think that this is... I suspect... It's hard to say, you know, uh, in retrospect, but I suspect we would be able to hear the difference, even if this weren't set out in verse form. Um... But it's more like his prose than his earlier verse, for the rhyme, if for no other reason, right? Um, But also, as I said, because it's more contiguous narrative, which his other poems have never been, really. Um, His old old songs were kind of flitting from idea to idea and image to image, talking about things, but, um, uh, but not telling a story. And this is clearly telling a story. Um, yeah, let's get to the end. Bunches of you guys want to talk about her heart, uh, the heart beating line, which I agree is extremely striking. Um, uh, one of you, who is it who said this? Um, yeah, Tillian, uh, the beating heart line always hangs with me. Yeah, um, that's the line that always fascinated me as well here. I, I, I found, I've always found that line very arresting, right? Um, we get four quatrains here, right? Four, it's 12 lines, right? The first set of four lines is him telling what his errand is. He, he told them he'd let them in on the secret of his errand, right? And then he does it. I had an errand there gathering water lilies, and then he explains why he does it to, you know, what he does, the lilies, why he does it to please his pretty lady, um, the circumstances, right, the last year, the year's end, to keep them from the winter, to flower by her pretty feet till the snows are melted. Second quatrain, second concept. Each year at summer's end, I go and find them for her. So first, this is the errand and why I'm doing this errand. Context, I do this every year, Right. This is an important annual ritual that I always perform, right? Um, I go to, in a wide pool, deep and clear, far down with the window. There they open first in spring, and there they they linger latest. 
By that pool long ago I found the river daughter, fair young Goldberry sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating. He reveals then in the end, right, in that third section, what is his reason, right? What does this mean? Why is this Aaron so... Why is this flower-picking Aaron so important, right? And the answer is, this is where I found Goldberry. Um, it is to commemorate. It is to memorialize. It is to reenact. And again, all of this stuff made so much more clear and strong and poignant by Irindus's brilliant observation of last week um, of the connection of, if we're thinking, thinking about Goldberry in connection with the, with the water lilies themselves rather than with the water. Um, sweet was her singing then, and her heart was beating. Why does he say that? And her heart was beating. Um, I had the same reaction that several of you, is, you know, a few have been kind of have been kind of joking about that. Um, I often have made similar jokes about the "and her heart was beating" line. Um, it seems it could be taken as a kind of um, a kind of sort of crashing understatement, right? That is to say, like, um, let me, uh, let me find something to convey how wonderful my bride was, right? Just to, to capture that moment. When I first saw her, here's what I was thinking of, right? And to, and to follow that up with, her heart was beating. Seems like a crashing anticlimax, right? Um, and it's easy to sort of, um, uh, to sort of find that, uh, to find that funny. Um, but I think it's, uh, there are a couple things that it seems to clearly suggest. One, you know, as, as a couple of you were saying, like, uh, uh, like, uh, Tom here, um, it's, it's, this is about meeting the love of his life, right? Um, it's her heart that he focuses on. So, you know, Tom Gold, he doesn't see Goldberry and is like, you know, Wow, she's really hot, right? It's you know what he what he notices of her is her heart, right? Uh, it is the connection between their hearts that he emphasizes from the beginning, and that's adorable in an appropriately Tom Bombadilian way. Um, but in addition, again, I think especially, um, yeah, JJ, that's exactly it. And as James Stevenson, JJ were both saying, um, the fact that she's the River Daughter that she's a spirit, it's not a given that she's going to have a beating heart. Why should she have a beating heart? She doesn't have a body, right? She doesn't need to respirate. She doesn't need to circulate oxygen to her limbs, right? She's a spirit. She doesn't have a body in the way that humans and elves have bodies, right? Under what circumstances do spirits have bodies? and bodies with beating hearts. If you come across a spirit like that, a river spirit or a water lily spirit with a beating heart, it suggests that spirit has embodied herself, right? Has manifested a fully functional, mortal-like body, right? Um, Yeah, JJ, she's there for the long term. Right, it is a bit um, uh, uh, Julia, like how Thingol and Melian meet. 
right? Um, yeah, Mary, and I do think that that is the implication, that it's her love for him that leads her to take a body, right? And not just any body, right? Again, not just physical form. She could take a body, for instance, if all she were interested in was reaching up and grabbing and dragging him into the water and trying to drown him, right? River spirits do that kind of thing all the time. You don't need a beating heart for that. In fact, a beating heart arguably would be an impediment to somebody like Jenny Greenteeth, the spirit of the river who reaches up and tries to drown people in, uh, you know, in some traditional English fairy tales. So um, that's, um, that's not about... That's being physical, right? Having a physical manifestation, but not a beating heart. Right, the fact that he finds her and finds her heart beating, this says something different about her. Right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, does he pick pick Lilies to keep her with him? You could connect it to certain like fairy tale type rituals. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that it, it 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 can be seen to sort of partake of that. Um, it would not be alien to the whole atmosphere of this to imagine, like, should Tom ever fail to bring back the water lilies on the anniversary of their meeting, then she will depart from it, he will lose her forever. Like, that's the kind of thing that happens in fairy tales, right? There's plenty of precedent for that kind of thing. Um, but... Um, there's no implication that that's the case, unless you want to say that he dared not hinder is an implication of that. But I, I, yeah, I mean, Lincoln, we did talk about this a little bit last week. Um, Yeah. And Arthur says, unlike a Selkie, who is the, the, the sort of spirit in question who would be kept like that. She's not longing to leave. Yeah. She showed up first with the beating heart showing that she was, interested and interested in staying for the long term. So no, so that's why for that for that reason why I don't read it like that. Goldberry is not being kept by Tom. She's not entrapped by Tom. Um she might reach and grab and yank him into the water and try to drown him in the poem. He has not done the opposite uh in this story. They're coming together as mutual and I to me it seems to fit much better um the idea that we were talking about last week that his action of picking the water lilies is a reenactment um, rather than a, a sort of a spell to keep her there. Um, yes, Ricky Ticky, that's exactly what I would tend to think that those fairy tales um, of, you know, the water spirit being kept by having the fresh lilies, but is, is a sad echo of the story of Tom and Goldberry. Yes, it's like a, a fallen version of their story. Um, yes, yes, that's exactly how I would read it. Um, yeah, Erocheb says, perhaps it's a way of uniting Goldberry's domain with Tom's. Their marriage demands that their land be joined as well. Yeah, in that way, Erocheb, that's another way, I think, to think about this as a recapitulation of their marriage, right, of their wedding. Right. That, you know, just as and and we see this emphasized when the hobbits come in and they see the bowls and the lilies. Right. It's like a little chunk of the river there in the house. Right. We can see the marriage of Tom's house and Goldberry's river surroundings right there in one place. Um, Another version of eating the wedding feast over and over, Julia. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, yeah. Um, okay. Hey, let's keep going. He opened his eyes and looked at them with a sudden glint of blue. And that proved well for you, for now I shall no longer go down deep again along the forest water, not while the year is old, nor shall I be passing old man Willow's house this side of springtime, not till the merry spring when the river daughter dances down the withy path to bathe in the water. Um, and that proved well for you. So notice where he ends up emphasizing this is the end, the long, the end of his long answer to the question, did you hear me calling, Master, or was it chance? Right? And notice what he comes back to at the end. Uh, it was just chance of chance you call it. And then at the end he emphasizes, and an unusual chance, right? And a very lucky chance for you. Um, the day that, by coincidence, I happened to bump into you is the last day it would have been possible for me to bump into you. Right. Um, now, again, does this mean that Tom is emphasizing that, like, boy, you were really lucky? No, he doesn't believe in chance. Right. Um, in fact, it would. I would seem. I would take that the other way. Um, I would take that as a, as an input, as a suggestion of him emphasizing that it was a plan. Right. Um, the coincidence, the chance, the fortune is too striking to be dismissed as merely random, as merely lucky. Right. Um, you know, uh, you're a very fine fellow, Frodo Baggins, uh, uh, and I am very fond of you, but you were only a small uh, person in the wide world, uh, right, for all that, as Gandalf says to Bilbo at the end of The Hobbit. Um, yeah, it's a little too much to ask of a coincidence, and that seems to me what he's emphasizing there at the end. This is the last day I would have been down by the withy window. So, lucky that... Uh, uh, you came that day, isn't it? Um, James says, you could say the trees in the forest made sure the hobbits got there while Tom was still out. In a sense, James, but that's part of the irony, right? That wasn't their plan, right? They, their plan, they did it for evil, not for good. But the malice of the trees, the malice of old man Willow, turns out to be the very thing that brings them right to the place where they will meet Tom Bombadil just in the nick of time when they never would have met him otherwise if uh, Old Man Willow hadn't brought them straight down. Um, Yeah, exactly. But that's a thing that we see um, very frequently, right? Um, Oft evil will shall evil mar, as we will learn later on. And that many times is seen. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Awesome. Hey, we finished that slide. That's making me feel all, uh, all adventurous. One more, because I don't have as much to say about this last one. He fell silent again, but Frodo could not help asking one more question, the one he most desired to have answered. Tell us, Master, he said, about the Willow Man. What is he? I have never heard of him before. No, don't, said Merry and Pippin together, sitting suddenly upright. Not now, not until the morning. That is right, said the old man. Now is the time for resting. Some things are ill to hear when the world's in shadow. Sleep till the morning light, rest on the pillow, heed no nightly noise, fear no grey willow. 
Um, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to his uh, lines in my head here. Notice that his lines assert themselves really clearly, starting with some things, right? Some things are ill to hear when the world's in shadow. Sleep till the morning light, rest on the pillow. Heed no nightly noise, fear no gray willow. Very clear, right? But his first words are less clear. That is right. Now is the time for resting. Sometimes he'll say a little something which leads him into... But again, I'm, I'm sort of looking back and thinking, okay, does that fit with what they were saying? Anyway, that, that's what I was just briefly, briefly uh, thinking about. Um, yeah, James, isn't that interesting that he's called the old man, right? That's very interesting. I don't know what to make of it, but it's very interesting. One thing that I'm thinking, and uh, Tony, this comes back to the observation that you made before about the grown-up child dynamic between the hobbits and Tom after Goldberry leaves, that seems to emphasize it, right? That he is he is the old man. Um, they are the young, inexperienced people who have to muster their courage in order to ask him questions, right? That does really seem to point uh, even more clearly to that particular dynamic. Um... And absolutely, uh, um, James, yeah. This Doesn't this sound like an incantation even more than Goldberry's little benediction did, right? Sleep till the morning night, rest on the pillow, heed no nightly noise, fear no gray willow. A series of commands, again. And the fact that he shifts so clearly into his verse form um, at that point gives that added significance, right? Added emphasis. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Juliet, there is indeed a large age gap between them, right? Um, but it's not been that apparent. He's not looked like an old man. He doesn't have white hair or gray hair, right? I mean, he's not aged in appearance. Um, and although they are doubtless suspicious by this point, they don't, they've not been told about his chronological age, right? And how long he's been there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, yeah. Tom and... Uh, oh, somebody else was saying this too. Uh, uh, the Mad Violinist, yeah. Um, remembering Gandalf stopping telling Frodo about the ring right before the beginning of the Shadow of the Past, right? Um, because it was dark and some things are ill to hear while the world's in shadow. Very similar to what Gandalf... Or Frodo says... Frodo reports that Gandalf had said the night before that you told me, you know, to we should wait until the morning for this, right? So we do see that. And again, that seems to me to fit in with the incantatory elements that we can see in both Goldberry and Tom's benedictions here, right? That is to say, speak a thing and it happens, right? So if you speak about fearful things in the night, you give them power, in a sense, right? I'm being a little bit sort of squishy about this, but but if you see what I... There, there seems to be that sense of... Um, because notice he turns away from it and immediately to that incantation, 
right? No, no, no. Instead, we're not going to go there. We're not going to invoke that. We're not going to talk about the willow because it's, it's some things are ill to hear when the world's in shadow, right? Sleep till the morning light. Rest on the pillow. Heed no nightly noise. Fear no gray willow. Um, he's going to turn that around and say, this is how it should be at night. Tomorrow, in the morning, um, when the world's not in shadow anymore, then we can talk about these things. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Brandon likes my slide title. I, I, I couldn't help but uh, think of that. Anyway, I'll, I'll finish reading it, then I'll... Um, Uh, And with that, he took down the lamp and blew it out, and grasping a candle in either hand, he led them out of the room. Their mattresses and pillows were as soft as down, and the blankets were of white wool. They had hardly laid themselves on the deep beds and drawn the light covers over them before they were asleep. Um... So I had uh, my, for those of you who can't see it, if you're watching on Twitter, for instance, uh, the subtitle that I have on my slide, on this slide, is Goodnight Tom, Goodnight Bomb, Goodnight Bombadillo. I couldn't get Goodnight Moon out of my head when I was, uh, uh, when I was reading this passage. Um, but, um, anyway, I, um, yeah, so it's, um, they go to sleep, they go to bed with his blessings on them, and when they do, they go to sleep almost immediately, right? He's just told them to, right? And he's just told them to in verse, right? Sleep till the morning light, rest on the pillow, and they do. Um, uh, and this seems to be even more, his uh, incantation here seems even stronger than Goldberry's, right? Though it's similar in kind, so you could say that the two of them are kind of, uh, are kind of working together. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Lady Shmebiwak, I think the reason I was thinking of Goodnight Moon is that uh, thinking about Tom Bombadil and then this passage, I was reminded of Goodnight Moon, and then I agree, once I thought of that, Connection. I couldn't like disentangle them um, because good, there is something in the in the atmosphere of Goodnight Moon, which is kind of Tom Bombadilian, right? And so I totally agree with you. Um, would somebody please write a uh, a Goodnight Moon parody uh, spoken by Tom Bombadil? That that should happen, right? Doesn't it seem like that's a thing that should exist? I think that's a thing that should exist. Uh, so uh, thank you, Julia. Thank you for taking on that task. Uh, post it on the discussion board, and I'll put it on the slide, and we'll read it in class. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, this should totally... Yeah, you know, if Bricktails had just quoted my favorite line, good night, nobody, good night, mush. Um, saying good night to the mush on the table. That Tom Bombadil would totally do that, right? Wouldn't Tom Bombadil do that? Um but uh, anyway, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> all right, good. Community project. All right, you can work on this stuff on the uh, on the, and we'll we'll leave you with that. We'll leave you with the our aspirations for a Tom Bombadil version of Goodnight Moon. Uh, next week we'll begin uh, <laughs> and maybe end with the dreams that they have this night. We've been uh, uh, we've been very interested in the dream so far. Again, we spent a lot of time talking about Frodo's dream. Been really excited. You know, back then you guys were chomping at the bit to jump ahead and talk about their dreams here. Um, so, um, uh, so, so let's uh, uh, let's 
let's look at that. Of course, we don't own, we don't only get Frodo's second dream, which we can then uh, look at in the context of his first dream, but we also get dreams from uh, Pippin and Merry, and in a sense from Sam. So. I look forward to that. Thanks, everybody. We're going to do our field trip now. So thank you, everybody, for joining us uh, for the class. If you're just here for the book talk, uh, this that will be the end of that now. We're going to now go and do the second portion of our class, uh, which is our uh, in-game field trip and our looking at the our exploring... Uh, the adaptation uh, and sort of extended sub-creation of Tolkien's world uh, that they do in Lotro. Moving from our slow, close reading of the book to our slow, close reading uh, of the game world, which I find to be such an engaging and interesting adaptation uh, that I find that I love to do the same kind of close reading uh, with it. Uh, So, all right. So we're gonna so we're gonna do that now. So I'm gonna say goodnight to the folks on Twitter. If you want to join us for the field trip again, as always, uh, just shift over to twitch.tv slash signumu s i g n u m u, and uh, that'll get you to our Twitch channel where we'll be broadcasting that. So thanks everybody on Twitter. Good night, and let's head out to uh, our destination here. Oh, Maven is still with us. Very good. Everybody put your fur on. That's right. Boots. We're going to go back to Foracal here tonight. So, um, the best way to do it, because even those of us that have 100%, we're not going to end up being able to take even close to Calpacota. So, best way to do this, if you can manage it, is Osfer Road, and then Osfer Road, take a swift travel to Calpacota. Yeah. Um, and you can get to Osfer Road from West Bree if you don't have a milestone to get there. So you can get swift travel to Osfer from West Bree and then on. To, and that's the way you're going to go, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm just going to take a horse to Osfer Road and then jump on yeah. another quick travel horse up to Capacota uh, yeah, from there. So. so and I'll, I'll hang out for a bit in Capacota and uh, wait for folks if you want to catch up with us there. Okay, good, good. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually going to wait here and make sure folks get gone. Okay, and cool. I'll join you. All right, I will head out. Up the stairs, out of the lower hall, as usual. Yeah, Amethorn, I'm going to have to use Mithril Coins to Swift Travel as well, because I don't have... Uh, uh, since we are on Arkenstone here this evening, I don't... Um, which is not where I usually play. I don't have all my Stable Masters open and stuff, so... Ooh. Lagging in Bree! Who would have thunk it? Greetings. There we go. I'm going to go to Osferod. <laughs> JJ asks, how bad was the Black Riders lag in Bree? 
Um, well, pretty bad. I mean, that's, you get, that's why you, you can see they didn't catch him, right? So. What can I do for you? All right. Capacota. Bam. All right. I was tempted to do, to do a little side trip, but I'm going to uh, be disciplined. But today on Twitter, um, there was a, a Lotro player who tweeted to me an image of a set of ruins in uh, uh, in the what the, the the hills north of Buckland. Which I couldn't identify. Like the iconography on the ruins was totally fucking looked like an Arnorian ruin, but the iconography didn't seem to be Arnorian. So I was like, "Wow, I've got to go look at that." But um, anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to the script. However, <laughs> you can make that a special special side Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll find an excuse to bring Grifflet back in that direction or something. Wiggins, you know, Wiggins can That's true. For a while, for a while. That's true. Oh, I know. You could do it when you do it with your puns. I know. To have you talk about architecture. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah my, my kids love it when I spend an indefinite <laughs> amount of time talking about the walls of things. So I think we still have a few people to arrive. Yep. We've got some people showing up here. Oh man, it's cloudy. No northern lights. I see the northern lights. You do? I'm not getting them. Got them last time. Orchard. Wait, you're seeing the northern lights? Why am I not seeing the northern lights? Yeah, absolutely clear starry sky with gorgeous northern lights. Hang on a second. No, I'm, I'm in ultra-high graphics. How strange. That's very weird. Oh, man, I'm getting ripped off my northern lights. <laughs> it's really pretty. But I won't rub it in. Yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. Well, hang on. Now that I've opened the uh, Stable Masters, maybe if I go away and come back, I'll get the Northern Lights, you think? Does that work? Oh, it's the fog bug? Oh, dear. Oh, JJ's all rubbing it in. You've never seen Northern Lights so beautiful as this. Oh, sure. I'd have to reboot? Oh, man. I said reboot and exit out of the whole game? Is it worth it? Well, hmm. Northern Lights are kind of tempting. I mean, you're the only guy with the... Yeah. Okay, well, we're going to give people time to travel anyway. I'll do it. 
I'll do it. I'll log out and log back in again. Okay. Control is slide up on this. Let's see. Just log out, log back in, we'll see if that fixes it. <laughs> Brandon found a white stag. Cool. Let's see. If this doesn't work, I'll give up. Uh, yes! They're back. Wow, they are really bright. Woohoo! It fixed it. Oh, that was so worth it. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's not Forica without the Northern Lights. Woohoo! And the moon. Yeah, I'll get Signa Mew up here, too. We can have eagle friends here. Okay. All right. So we've got a bunch of people here. Still people on the way? I think this is probably the... What was I? You cut out there at the end there, Trish. You. Did I cut out again? Yeah, yeah, you did. I think we're we're a okay. You think we're if good? I could give you a verbal thumbs up. I would do that. Okay. Yes. Cool. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Then let's uh, let's take off. Okay, yes, yeah, so we've got some really low-level folks here with us. We've got what a, I see on the twi Twitch chat, a level 19 lore master and a level 27 hobbit. So that'll be uh, that'll be interesting. Oh yeah, there he is. There's Bluebell. I see you, Bluebell. Looking all bundled up there appropriately. Cool. Okay. Um, oh, nice dog cosmetic pet. When what? you make it in to West. Is, is that a, is it a hound? Yeah. It's nice. actually quite. It's a, it's a, it's a quest reward. Yeah. Cool. 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 Awesome. Um, okay. Excellent. Okay. All right. So we got as far as this last week and we will, uh, we'll continue on to the North now as things get, uh, even more Arctic from here. Now we haven't filled up or anything. I don't know if we need to do that. But again, I urge um, higher level folks. Actually, so, actually, you know, I think I will so that I can think. Oh, I saw you're breaking up again here, Trish. There's something in your, your uh, microphone's not staying connected here. So you're saying right. you're gonna I'll, you're gonna follow I'll, us up? I'll, yeah, because that way I can put a mark over the low level guys. Aha. Okay. Cool. Oh, there are half do dozen of us down by the lake now, on the road up towards the north. Okay. 
Right, so with all of those, I assume, we get these uh, elaborate windbreaks all surrounding the village, which makes perfect sense. It's interesting that from here... Wow, man, the sky is incredible. Um, from here... It uh, that's all you can really see. All you can see are the, uh, you know, the large, the sort of the sheets of 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 leather and fur that are uh, shielding the village from the wind. You can see the arch of those enormous mammoth ribs or whatever they are, um, dragon ribs that are mistaken for mammoth ribs. Our theory from last time, and uh, and then you can see the glow of the fire from within, but you can see very little else uh, of the town. That's a really neat effect from down here by the lake. Um, and, uh, oh, a quick answer to uh, Mr. Schwab over there um, in the uh, uh, Discord chat. If you have comments or uh, things that you want to talk about for next time, go to our discussion forum. Um, there's a questions for Narnian section uh, there on um, uh, uh, lotro.mythgard.org is the name of the discussion forum, and you'll be able to post it there. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. Uh, Maven, are you are you fellowshipping? I am. Are you fellowshipping up by the stable master still? No, I'm right here. But it looks like oh, I have to switch. Um, I was couldn't figure out why I couldn't invite people. I have to switch to a raid. Aha! <laughs> right. Okay. Huh. Okay. Man. I love the silhouettes of the mountains with the northern lights behind them. All right, do we have everybody or most everybody? I think so. All right. Okay, let's carry on then. Up into the next zone and see what we find. So remember, we were noticing that down here we have, there's our Frost Grim, like we were looking at last time and discussing at the very end of class in the way that I was arguing that these are, you know, sort of these spirit, you know, these spirits of extreme cold that are, um, uh, that have, uh, that are kind of wandering loose up here, um, so that we see primarily the, you know, the, the, the mobs in this area, the, um, you know, the bad guys are mostly animals, right? With uh, a small settlement of goblins over there. And uh, am I going the right way? This is the road, right? Yeah, this no. is the road. I do sometimes lose the road in the snow, so I don't want to... I don't want to... Uh, 
end up leading everybody the wrong way as I'm talking and not really paying attention to where I'm going. Um, anyway, so I said we saw mostly animals. There's a settlement of goblins. Uh, there's some sort of more ferocious beast, like the wolves are running rampant and stuff. But it's mostly uh, just the wild creatures of the forest. Of course, we see all these moose here. Um, by the way, I almost hit a moose with my car two days ago. There was a moose crossed my road right in front. Like across, I was backing out of my driveway, and I turned around and, and was like proceeding down the road when a moose comes out of the bushes, walks about 10 feet in front of my car, and then uh, leaves the road uh, in, and goes into my yard. Uh, I was like, whoa, <laughs> a moose. <laughs> that was a striking moment uh, in my uh, in my family history. So, um I've just been thinking about moose lately. Okay, so we have now crossed up to uh, to Yakuru, as you can see here on the map, this second area here, which suggests that we are going as we are about to go. Our, the road is about to descend. There's a giant oryx there. I'm going to go down the cleft here. What do you think these hanging bits are? What is the function of these? Do they have a function? Are they still just designed to kind of break up the wind? They seem a little bit insubstantial for that. I don't know if they're meant to be ceremonial. Am I being attacked by a wolverine? I'm totally being attacked by a wolverine. This wolverine just dismounted me. Okay. Then my eagle pecked it to death. Um... What, um, do you guys have any idea of what those things may be? Snow breaks? So it doesn't fall in a clump, maybe? Way markers, possibly? Safety nets. JJ, that would be a, that would not be a safety net that would make me feel confident, I gotta tell you. Well, it's in, it's, let's watch where they tend to be, where we tend to find them. Okay, so now we're down in this sheltered, or comparatively sheltered ravine. Snow still falling, but are those moose antlers? Yes. We've seen some moose antlers on houses, but uh, not on freestanding poles quite like that before. Okay. Okay, there's some more. Overhanging there again. Huh. I still don't know quite what to make of them. Anyway, sorry. We haven't seen any direct evidence yet of who lives here. We saw the giant aurochs, right? So there was a there's you know the, these uh, you know very large buffalo-like animals. Now, with the moose, we're still getting moose, right? So, we've seen nothing but beasts so far down here in this channel. It's interesting, of course, and and also suggests a sort of cultural difference, right? That uh, the road through this area is in uh, is down in the inside the ravines uh, to sort of shelter from the wind. Oh, look out! Don't let the moose kill anybody. There right, we go. Yeah. 
Those bull moose will go for our low-level characters. Just like that deer that tried to kill me in Athelion. <laughs> that deer that came charging down the tunnel after me. It was a doe, too. Anyway, okay. So we have what does seem to be a road, though there's no evidence of any paving or anything like that. It seems to be just packed snow and ice down here. And so... Something which they could... What is this, a wolverine? Yeah. Another wolverine. Okay, still nothing but animals. Yeah, she was the doe of death, Tony. That's absolutely right. This manic, carnivorous doe that... Okay, so over here we get one of these screen things that's vertical and right next to the wall and this other one is overhanging as the others have been I don't know I don't get them but that's one of the experiences that I often have in uh, Forakel which seems to me appropriate Right? Like, there's something alien about this. Notice, even the fact that we don't have, you know, in all the travels that we've done so far, we've never, um, we've never been far from Arnorian ruins. There's something familiar about that. Hey, look! A set of ruins. Uh-huh. And these are easy to identify, Right? You know, there's no Arnorian star. There's nothing quite that obvious, but you can still tell. Clearly who made this, right? Plain dwarvish architecture. Clearly. So dwarves built here. Now as you can see, we can see we just encountered this. We're up near by the map, near the end of the northern end of this channel that we've been going through, and We've just descended. Are we actually underground now? I think we are actually underground. So when this has when this has gone from canyon to tunnel, it uh, we begin to find dwarvish ruins. Do we see that elsewhere? Do we see any others yet? No, not yet. Okay, let's see what more we see. It's one of the things that we see. Uh, here's more. Same style. Yeah. Hard to tell what it was or where. These look like fortifications. No windows, no uh, access points here. Presumably the door, the dwarves would have built primarily in the stone itself, and so it only sort of bordered on this tunnel here. Oh, look at these steamy fissures. Nothing I see over there. Okay. Um, one of the things that we can observe, therefore, notice uh, the implicit interpretive claim that the Lotro developers have made about dwarves, right? About Tolkien's dwarves. Um, they are the most universal culture. Anyway, like we find them everywhere. Um, and unlike humans, whom we also find almost everywhere, 
Um, the humans are widely different, right? I mean, there are humans up here, of course, in Forakel, but as we've already seen, the humans in Forakel have a totally different culture, which is very, very unlike um, the culture. It's, you know, quite quite separate from, like, Breland culture um, or even Dim culture. And yet, when we find the dwarves, they look the same, right? The, the human architecture here, totally different from human architecture everywhere else, and yet the dwarf architecture here, very recognizable as dwarf architecture. Um, it looks just like Moria, it looks just like Thorn's Gate, right? Um, so, the dwarves have, on the one hand, one of the most homogeneous cultures that we see among any of the races, even the elves, really, um, in the game, and yet, you know, is in the, you know again the choices that they've made and how to depict them in the game world. And yet, we also find them at least as uh, universally, um, we 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 find we find them more universally distributed than anybody else. Right? We don't see elvish settlements up here, but we see evidence of dwarvish settlements. And now we get a new bad guy. And here we're getting the Gauradan. The Gauradine, to use the plural, right? Whom we met before. And these markings are clearly like uh, territorial markings, right? A staff with a wolf skull and... Are those feathers? Those are strips of cloth, right? Are those feathers hanging down the back? I think they are. Feathers? Yeah, they look like feathers. No, those are wolf tails. Right. Two skulls and two wolf tails. And then the fabric. Are the f- Is the fabric... Do you think the fabric is meant to suggest... I think it is meant to suggest blood dripping from the mouth of the wolves. Right? So that it shows this is the place where the wolf clan is and this is what will happen to you. The wolf... The wolves... You know, the Garadine of the wolf clans will tear you apart and your, like, ragged flesh will hang dripping from our mouths, kind of like this fabric as it is hanging down from the mouths of the... Uh, of these skulls. That's, anyway, how I read this friendly little artifact right here. Um, okay, so we've seen the Gauradine, and not only should we not be surprised to find them here in the sense that... Oh, good, the fog didn't follow me. Nice. Um, not only did... Uh, um, does it make sense that we would meet the Gauradine here? But of course we should be expecting to if we pursued the quest lines in Evendim because the um, um, the the people there were complaining that the Gauradine had come down from the north and crossed over the mountains to meet them. Oh, we have an Aurox causing trouble. There we go. Okay. A windbreak to keep the wind from whistling down here, and oh, here comes a Garadine from behind. I got pursuit from behind here. Those of you on war steeds might want to look out. There we go. Thank you. Um, huh, why would they care if the wind came over this way? What? Is this trying to shelter? That must mean, right, that the dominant wind comes from the north. No shock. And so, therefore, they're trying to shelter the road, I guess. But boy, would that make this place a wind tunnel if the wind came down the road, though. 
But I guess you win some, you lose some on, on that. But these windbreaks look just like the windbreaks of the people in Capacota. So, and this house looks just like their house, even to the same little moose head thing that we see in these bags hoisted up above the door as if to keep them out of the reach of bears, which we haven't seen yet. We've seen not nary a bear. We've seen wolves, and of course the wolves that we saw in the south have now given way to the Garadine, right? To the wolf men up here in the north and presumably wolves with them. Um, we've seen moose and we've seen wolverines, um, but we haven't seen bears yet. I don't think. Were there bears? Did we see bears down in Capacota? I'm forgetting. Um, no. Yeah, I don't think we did see bears. I don't remember bears. Moose plural. Moose plural? Mooses? No, I said moose and squirrel. Moose and we squirrel, we yeah. Saw, we, saw, we saw moose and bed badger. Moose and bed What other wolverines, not badgers? <laughs> A wolverine, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What is this up here? Not the moose. I know what that is. Um, what is... Like a windbreak. But more... I don't know what. Decorative? Vaguely... Anthropomorphic? Vaguely. I have no idea what this thing is. And I, I'm trying to read it. You know, I'm trying to interpret it like... Again, the message of the of the little, uh, uh, you know, the wolf totems. It's easier to, to read, right? Um, easier to understand. This? I don't get this. Anybody have any theories? Yeah, JJ is asking if the pattern is strictly decorative or are there actual symbols. Um, it looks decorative, in that the, the the things like these parts here and these parts here, which look like they could be letters or symbols, seem to be part of the overall pattern. I don't know. It looks like it's just decorative. But, you know, what do I know? But in any case, it's the same... Symbols. It's the same decorations that we saw on the windbreaks down in Capacota. So I'm assuming that this is not of Garadine make, um, uh, but of but made by the Lossoff. In which case, clearly those things with the cloth tied in between them that I don't understand are made by the Lossoff as well, not the Garadine, um, because this turquoise fabric that seems to be twisted into something like rope um, seems to be consistent among all of those, and I'm not sure what that is or what that suggests. Interesting also that these 
This especially, this very tall thing, is made out of wood. Right? We haven't... I guess those bricks have all been made out of wood, too, rather than bone. Yeah, Violet is thinking it might be just a landmark to see far away in bad weather. Um, yeah, because it stands at the jun- at the junction of the roads, so that seems to me most li- the most likely explanation that it's designed to stand here. No matter how much snow falls, this marker of the intersection of the roads will still be here. All right, let's um, let's carry on coming to the end of our field trip time, and I wanted to make sure we got at least up here to the this other village. Oh, look, there's another one up on top of the hill. Up here to Pinti Peldat. Welcome to Leviras. Okay. Yep, here we have the same pattern, which seems to be worked into all of their leathers. So we have them on the windbreaks, we have them on the tents. These are much smaller. We didn't see triangle or little tents like that. They were all dome-shaped. Which suggests that, what, these are using wood, right? These four wood beams to make up the corners of these uh, pyramid-shaped tents. And that these are made of bone? No, these are igloos. These are cut from snow. These ones are. We didn't see these. We didn't see igloos down in Capacota. Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting theory, JJ. Um, it is... He's wondering if it's possible that the wind would make a noise when it goes through... Uh, through these things, you mean? The things that I can't figure out? The stakes with the... or the poles with the, the fabric draped in between? Yeah. Or or did you mean the tall, tower-like things? If these made a sound, though, why would they put them all around the village? Unless... Unless the sound is designed to, like, repel beasts? Is it, like, does it make a sound that, like, annoys bears and wolves, right? But, uh, humans don't mind so much? It's an interesting theory. For either of them. For either of the tall things. Or for the you know, the cloth-on poles there. Now, here in the central fire of the village, we have more of these mammoth bones or mammoth tusks. I call them that because they seem to be decorated with mammoths. Boy, it's really insistent that I go after the roving threat. No. Thank you. Um, exactly. Like sonic mosquito repellent, but for large quadrupeds. Exactly. That's just what I'm thinking. Um, 
It is interesting, Katriana, isn't it, that the igloos have uh, have wooden doors and window flaps? That's why I didn't realize that they were made of snow at first, because that's what I was looking at. Um, so I thought that this, and especially since uh, down in Capacota we saw um, domed buildings, right, which were clearly uh, made out of leather and furs rather than of snow. So I, I was. I was like, oh, look, dome edifices. Notice how irregular they are, right? Shaped very differently, one from another. Um, oh, what is this? Is this wood? Yes, this is a log. So these very straight logs would appear to be pines, which, of course, is sensible. It's sensible that, that they would have some logs, and the logs would be pines, as you can see on the skyline there. There are pines about, or rather, all of the trees that are about appear to be pines, uh, so that all of the logs we see would be of this long, very straight variety. Makes a lot of sense, right? So, of course, again, thinking in the big picture here, what do we see happening in Forcal as the as the game is developing it? Um, we see them thinking carefully about what the northern culture would be, right? What Again, we get almost nothing in the book about what the Lossoth are like. Um, so we are... We can see the developers imagining uh, the culture, and of course you get that fleshed out more when you interact with them and uh, do the quests that they set you on and stuff, which I found very interesting. Um, and... Uh, but the primary thing that they have here is just an independent culture, unconnected from any of the other cultures in the South, and, and I can see no influences other than um, that one elvish name for the forest down there, uh, and the dwarvish ruins that we found, right? So there are the dwarves popping up up here as well. And um, I wonder, I wonder if in making the dwarves as universal as they have, right, um, there's some indication in the book that the dwarves travel around a lot, right? Just the fact that the hobbits are most familiar with dwarves because they see dwarves crossing the Shire on the on the East Road, right? Um, why is it that dwarves travel more than other races do? Because remember, that's far from a given in this culture, right? Um, you know, somebody like Barlaman Butterbur is going to live in Bree his whole life and, and never leave the five towns, Um you know, he's never been, he's clearly never been 20 miles away from the Prancing Pony, right? Um, it doesn't say that explicitly, but of course I'm thinking of Sam, the limits of Sam's geography. And that was fairly typical. Um, so we know that dwarves travel a lot when even, you know, even when travel is not very common and we see most people, hobbits and elves, don't, or not, not elves, hobbits and men don't travel around a whole lot. Back in the original conception, um, when Tolkien first started describing dwarves in the uh, in the early Silmarillion material, the primary identity of dwarves was not as craftsmen, not as blacksmiths and metalsmiths, um, or even as builders, but as merchants first and foremost. They were traders, and that's why they traveled a lot. Um, and that, of course, changed over time. It developed into the dwarves as the great smiths and uh, and uh, you know elegant artists uh, that we see 
with uh, you know Thorin and company taking pride in the workmanship of their fathers and all that stuff, and then of course developing through uh, to what we see through Gimli's character and what we're told about the dwarves in Appendix A, uh, the appendix on Durin's folk. But but that original conception of them being merchants and therefore traveling around a lot um, kind of lingers. And I wonder, you know, the the dwarves that we meet in the game, um, they have sort of firmly adopted the later dwarf concepts, right? So all of those, you know, we don't see dwarves necessarily acting as merchants all the time in game. And yet again, the kind of people who would be traveling, who would set up enclaves in every region, even if there aren't any other dwarves living there, like that, why would there be like one settlement, at least one settlement of dwarves in almost every single zone of the game? Um, Because if they were merchants, they would do that, right? Um, So that's, um, that's interesting, right? Um, And and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, uh, if the establishment of the the kind of the ubiquity of the dwarves right is kind of a uh, an acknowledgement a, a a memory of uh the of that concept of the dwarves um anyway okay i should let you guys go it's late and I, i'm i'm my uh my i've made a commitment to not uh, keep you guys past midnight eastern time but uh uh and it's the the, the 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 clock has just struck uh, and uh, so lest my computer turn into a pumpkin I'm going to say goodnight and let you guys go we will pick up our uh, exploration and, con- and contemplation of uh, of how I want to make it up to Suri Kaila um, uh, next time so yeah Bricktails is thinking about it being a consequence of them being driven out of their ancestral homes repeatedly yeah yeah, I agree. That is a really interesting thought about the dwarves, how they are a nomadic people without a permanent home because they've lost their ancestral homes. I like that reading. Okay, anyway, uh, good night, everybody, and I uh, will see you guys next week. We're going to be on the Gladden server next week, I believe. Um, so thanks, everybody, and I will see you guys next time. Bye now. <laughs>